0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host.
1: I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, cult of personality. <laughs> you are. Jason has so many followers who are
0: hanging on his every word and uh, afraid of angering him and being banished.
1: Josh, just drink the Kool-Aid, baby. <laughs> just drink the Kool-Aid.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's fun. So in this season <laughs> of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 2012. And we are here at my pick, which is all about uh, a cult. Or is it a cult? Uh, we'll probably not. Again. I mean, it, it yeah, is. No, that's true. Either way. Yeah, you're you right. Know. You're right. It is a cult, whether, whether the cult's um, tenets are valid or not is a question that we can't quite answer maybe, but we'll, we'll delve into that. It is the film Sound of my Voice, directed by Zal Batman Lee and uh, co-written by him and Britt Marling, who is also the co-star of this film as the cult leader, Maggie, who claims to be from the future and this is uh, this was my number one pick, my number one film on my top 10 list. In 2012, and so it seemed like the obvious choice to pick, and I was hoping it would hold up. And uh, eh, yeah, I think it mostly did. So it was actually it was on my top 10 list because it was commercially released in theaters in 2012. It had premiered, however, in 2011 at the Sundance Film Festival, and then was picked up by Fox Searchlight and released in April 2012 in theaters in the U.S. It was not a huge hit. It grossed uh, four hundred eight thousand dollars on its budget of one hundred and thirty five thousand. So it, you know it uh, did all right, but those
1: are very no, small no, numbers. It That's not a good, that didn't do all right. <laughs> I mean, it's it, probably what it I, made
0: I, its budget. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Josh, you, you know, as you know, it it has developed a cult. Ah, yes, so, a cult movie you know, with a cult so. following. So
0: yeah, um, I know, and you're right. it's 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 not only the budget. I'm sure Fox Searchlight spent more than four hundred thousand dollars
1: on yeah, to market and buy and, it. Yeah. It's like, don't 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 be a stand for it, Josh, <laughs> just because it was number one on well, I this. mean,
0: I am I'm a big I am a big fan of this film. and and even if it wasn't a box office hit, it clearly was a good launching point for both Britt Marling and Zal Batman Lee, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, it wasn't as a lot of Sundance movies are that are kind of big sensations. And this was the, the Sundance year of Britt Marling, right? Because she kind of came out of nowhere as the star and co-writer of these two science fiction movies. It was this movie and Another Earth that she co-wrote and that was directed by Mike Cahill, which I believe ended up being the first one that was released in theaters. But this was like, she was went from unknown to this like next big thing based on Sundance that year.
1: Yeah. And I mean, look, Then I'm not saying this harshly, but clearly, you know, she, the next big thing, next big thing thing didn't really go that way, but she's still a uh, working and interesting actor and probably more interesting than if she had become the next big thing. Right. right.
0: And my impression, especially based on the career path that she's taken is that being the next big thing wasn't, as an actor, wasn't really something that she was aiming for. So, um, but you're right. Like a lot of, Big Sundance hype, this didn't pan out in that in that same way. This was not a big hit. And another Earth, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but it maybe it made more money than this, but it certainly was not like a big box office hit either.
1: Yeah, but we don't know if you're simping for that one the same way. I
0: will say that I am not. I actually don't think that movie's very good at all. <laughs> um, but that's not what this episode is about. Um, it did get nominated for a couple of independent
1: spirit awards for best first feature. Josh, Josh, beep, 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 breaking news. Pop, pop. Another earth had a budget of a hundred thousand and made 1.9 million. Now that's a hit. So
0: yeah, it did definitely better wow. than that. It definitely did. And I remembered it. I feel like Another Earth got a wider release too. I remember that being in in more theaters. And I could be wrong about that, but it
1: seemed Well, it had William Mapethor who we uh was kind of was this probably around this time on Lost where he was kind of like a hot. Hot commodity for a minute there. Yeah, that may be the case.
0: He was a known name, sort of, or at least a face that people recognized from having seen him on TV. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I wasn't a fan of that one. I was excited for both of these based on what I had heard out of Sundance. And that one let me down, but this one did the opposite of letting me down.
1: because Mm, Based on uh, all your moles at Sundance.
0: Well, just, I mean, all the coverage that you read out of Sundance and all the reviews. And this sounded like, especially these movies being these kind of, cerebral sci-fi films, artsy sci-fi films, I tend tend to like that sort of thing. So it was something that I was eager to check out.
1: Mm. And now uh and now we revisit it here on your pick. On my pick. Exactly. That's that's yeah. how the cycle works here. Although Josh, if you want to get, you know, really kind of esoteric about it, you did watch it. And now we're kind of talking about it again in a different iteration. So in a way it mimics another earth, not the sound of my voice, which really only three people and perhaps the entire audience will understand having seen both of those films. Go on, Josh. Right,
0: but it's not, it's the same film. It's not like an alternate dimension version of the film. It's the same movie. But,
1: but Josh, you're not the same as you once were.
0: True, but I'm not <laughs> an alternate dimension version of myself. I'm just, I'm actually more like Maggie cause I'm just myself. In the future, in the future, versus myself yeah. in the past
1: when I first saw this movie. Well, but that's what you're saying. But I don't know if I can believe you. L- literally, Josh, if you haven't watched these movies, none of this is making yeah, any sense. Yeah, but it's for fun and anyway. babble. Anyway,
0: good times time traveling pod we're going to get our future selves to come back and be our guests on this podcast to see what they think of this
2: download us in the future and download yeah. us now that'll be good it's interesting
1: like in the same year she did a time travel movie and then a dimensional or inter you know interplanetary travel movie. yeah
0: i mean and i think the stuff that she's done as her career has gone on clearly this kind of sci-fi ish thing is what she's interested in exploring in in future work that she's done as a, as a writer and producer. So um, this movie, and maybe this is part of the reason why it wasn't as big as Another Earth, which like I said, I didn't care for, but overall I think was maybe slightly better reviewed. Um, this movie got mixed to positive reviews. So uh, Roger Ebert said, Sound of My Voice is a sci-fi thriller made with smoke and mirrors. No special effects, no other worlds, only the possibility of time travel, which you can't show but can only talk about. The key figure here is Britt Marling, who co-wrote the script with the director, Zal Batmanli. She also starred in and co-wrote Another Earth, a much better film. Both films use their sci-fi premises as an avenue into human stories that might not be quite as compelling without them. She is a talent with an understated presence, and she demonstrates with Batmanly that you can conjure out of a very small budget, a quietly compelling film. Sound of my voice makes me very interested in what she'll come up with next.
1: Yeah, so I think those are fair points. Like, I've seen this and Another Earth. I like this one better, too. But um, I think, yeah, understated is a good way to describe her as a performer, you know? Yeah. And, and it is interesting, you know, you, I was kind of hoping that there would be more in between, like, when this came out and, you know, I know they they've done more TV, but really after this, it was just the East. That was the only other movie. Right.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think maybe partly that was because this wasn't as big a hit as maybe they were hoping for given his Sundance buzz. And then the East, which had, I'm sure a much bigger budget and some more recognizable stars in it was not a hit at all. I don't believe. So you get to that point and you know, you got to pivot. <laughs> To TV or uh, get hired to uh, direct a Marvel movie or something because the original stuff isn't hitting
1: as much as you would hope. Josh, the East had a six point five million dollar budget, made two point four million at the box office. Yeah, that's no good. And and came out in two thousand thirteen. So really, you know, they've really moved heavily into TV, right? Yeah, and this also
0: was originally
1: conceived
0: as potentially like an episodic project. Um, And then when it was put together as a feature film, it was meant to be like the first part of a trilogy. So I feel like this long form storytelling is something that Britt Marling and Zalbat Manley had always had in mind. And maybe TV is the place that's been best for them.
1: Right. This was supposed to be a web series and you kind of see it play out in these chapters in the film that... I don't know if the um, breaking up via, you know, title card one, two, three adds anything. No, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think it's detrimental. It's
0: just a quick little moment, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. There's one transition, I think, where you see the title card and suddenly we're with a character that we've never seen before and we don't really know what she's doing. The like Justice Department, the FBI agent. But otherwise, it, it, it doesn't really it seems almost arbitrary at times where those title cards come in.
1: Yeah, I think so. I did note, you know, in my uh, re-identification of this film, Josh, that um, I I like, you know, the story, the way they tell the story, but I feel like they maybe rely on one one too many tricks here, one or two too many tricks that like don't add up with the rest of the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that maybe don't add up because they're not trying to add them up yet, or they're letting you add them up yourself. But I can see how that can be frustrating, certainly
1: and example example like there's a narrator right who tells us the history of the two main characters and then never does anything else it's not a it's not a narration in the beginning of the movie it's like 10 20 minutes in and then hey you know this guy this is what happened to him and uh, this lady this is where she's all about and then you never hear from her again this <laughs> a not an effective usage of that. I don't
0: yeah, that was a little odd. And it, it had me wondering, like, who who is narrating? Is this supposed to be one of the characters that I just didn't realize that was their voice? And it's not. It's just someone is credited as narrator in the credits, and that's not a person who does anything else. So that is a little weird as a device. I guess I was thinking more of like plot threads that that are left hanging. But um, But yeah, you're right. That is sort of a a device that comes in. And maybe if it were a web series and that was like one, you know, three minute segment or whatever, you'd just be like, oh, this is the one where there's a narrator, but where it's plopped in the middle of a movie, it's a little strange.
1: Right. And it's an easy fix because these two are making an amateur documentary. So we could have easily put a scene in where they're narrating about each yeah. other. Yeah. So. I guess
0: it just didn't really bother me that much. I kind of went with it, but I can see how it, you, it did, it, it confused me for a second, but then I just let it go.
1: Yeah. But you know, hey, Josh, make a note on that uh, plot threads uh, issue, because I, I have a few questions in the next section., Of course, I'm sure we'll get into
0: that. There are plenty of questions to raise. So <laughs> uh, Wesley Morris in the Boston Globe said, any skepticism with this movie begins to mirror skepticism in the cult. And the stroke of brilliance is that psychological suspense is built into the structure of both what's on screen and our response to it. Sound of My Voice is a shrewdly inscrutable movie. Even after Maggie asks Peter, that's our main male character, to demonstrate his devotion in a manner that turns the film into a real thriller, it has no true genre. It's as much a satire as a mystery, a film as much about art as it is about faith. And Maggie might be as much Lady Gaga and Marina Abramovich, a high-impact performance artist, as she is a figure of oracular salvation. So the spell the movie casts is effective. Even after we know who Maggie is, we don't.
1: Not effective is that review.
0: Yeah, I mean, I this is not the only <laughs> review that mentioned that, that this is sort of a satirical in some way, and that's not something I got out of it at all.
1: Yeah, where? Where's the satire in this? I um, mean, the,
0: the satire of, uh, and this is the next review I have, although I didn't quote this part, but of like LA people, you know, in that that, that bit that you're just citing with the narration that tells you kind of the background of our two main characters, that the couple who are trying to make a documentary, The, the female character has this background as like a sort of privileged Hollywood kid, the daughter of a, what is it? A studio executive or something and a model. And, you know, she's sort of a dilettante who's tried all these various things and now she's gonna be a documentary filmmaker or whatever. I guess you could argue that
1: that's <laughs> where is the satire, right? There? That the idea <laughs> it's a ca- they built a character, right? Ooh. Right. No,
0: I mean I agree with you, but but I mean that's I think what some people are looking at this as making fun of of artistic ambition, maybe or or pretentiousness, rather.
1: I mean, I think you could easily have created a sat- satirical film, you know, like uh like you think of like Woody Allen Bananas or something, right? Like where it's like hey, we're going to go undercover into this cult and expose them for who they are. And then the story goes comedically as these two become like, or one of them becomes like the most devoted culty, right? Then that could be a satire, but this was not that at all. No,
0: and I didn't think it was comedic. And I mean, I think maybe what these reviews are thinking is that they couldn't take it seriously. And instead of saying that that's just a failure of the movie, they're trying to sort of spin it as maybe that's the point that it wasn't meant to be taken seriously, that it was satirical. But I I mean, I could take it seriously. And also I just, I don't think that that's the intent,
1: but. uh, Yeah, I mean, um, nobody does comedy quite like Britt Marling, right, right. Josh?
0: Yeah. (laughs) So again, uh, Karina Longworth (laughs) in The Village Voice sort of had this this angle on it. She said, "Uh, sound of my voice has the hallmarks of the uninspired micro-budget calling card. The bland, jittery visual realism can't counteract overheated performances of tin-eared dialogue, which strain for pulp but often land at soap. But an unusual ambition shines through. At its essence, a noir mystery in which a self-appointed detective is spun around by potentially fatal femmes, Sound of My Voice's open-ended climax sketches the outlines of an enjoyably loony, time-and-space-bending, vaguely political apocalyptic conspiracy. But barely cinematic enough to fill the space of the big screen, the film ultimately feels like a teaser prologue for something that doesn't yet exist.
1: Well, I disagree with most of that, but I do agree that in both this and, and this is my big thing with Britt Marling, in this and in Another Earth, right? When it ends, you're like, wait a second, come on, this is, this is the meat now. You finally got me to the place where I'm juiced up. You know, and then you and then you don't see anymore. Like the the moment you want to see more is when she's like, "Ah, you're done."
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think in part you can uh, attribute that here to the idea that they were expecting to have a sequel or hoping to have a sequel of some kind. Maybe they had some ideas in mind for how things would follow up or things would come together. And I totally understand the frustration at the end of this movie, thinking. Like you said, hey, we finally got to something now. <laughs> Why is the movie over? But I like all the, the the ambiguity and the uncertainty of this movie. And I it concerns me that I feel like if they had kept going and if they had made a sequel where we learned more specifically what really is or isn't going on, that it would have ended up being disappointing.
1: Yeah, I don't know how that would have played out either. And I, I don't mind the ending. I just wanted a little more here.
0: Yeah, and I think that's fair. But I, I, I don't know. I Watching it again, I remembered that that was sort of the idea, but without remembering specifically what happens. And we got to the end and I felt like, I kind of felt like emotionally, at least, I, I got to a nice closing point, even if plot-wise, there's a lot left unsaid there.
1: Well, Josh, as long as you got closure, that's all that matters. Yeah, thank you.
0: It's my pick. So, Jason, um, did you did we see this together? Did you see this when yeah. it came out?
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw it in the theater. I think this was like one. You know, as you said, all you you got all your uh, cronies there at Sundance <laughs> telling you what's going on, and uh, and then we saw this one, and I felt pretty much the same uh, both times. Yeah, yeah, my cronies of uh,
0: reviews that I read online. It's a real <laughs> network know. of connections I got there.
1: <laughs> well, that's it's better than your. Your cuck betas at uh, the Las Vegas Film Critics. Oh Society. yeah, some of them go
0: to Sundance. They might have. Uh, they might have
1: mentioned something
0: to me. At Sicko the time. fans. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I like this. Like I said, Neo I fights. had it as my number one movie of 2012. I really like. What
1: was it? number two? Oh, I don't know. Do you want me to look this up? Well, yeah, you said it. Now we need that
0: hot goss, buddy. All right, give me a second here. I got to find this.
1: But this is the type of movie that you would put as number one. Mixed reviews, female ingenue, you know, as like the lead. Uh, no one in the world had heard of it at the time. This is a classic, Josh number one pick. I
0: mean, some people had heard of it. Like I said, it was a big. It was a big Sundance hyped. Okay, here we go. This is from the time of 2012. My number two movie was Argo. Ah, so. Wow. you know not a movie that no one had heard of or but it wasn't
1: your number 1
0: it so. wasn't my number 1 no it was number 2 and uh, spoiler we are going to talk about it later in this season but it was the best picture it's yes. not a spoiler no it's not everybody. a spoiler we we don't mm-hmm. really need to shroud that in mystery so yeah i mean i had a mix on my top 10 list that year of bigger stuff like argo and smaller stuff like this and i feel like that's typically how i end up but this movie just it it stuck with me i remember feeling like really on edge watching this movie that it's suspenseful and it's eerie and it's unsettling and I like that about it.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, a good mood piece and the mood carries all the way through. Yeah, totally.
0: So Dave, did you see this uh, back in 2012?
2: I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater. Uh, I, I have it written down here in my notes. Uh, Gina says that Brit Marlin is her celebrity crush. Mm-hmm. so we, we watched all of the Brit Marlin things as well as the show and all that. So... Uh, yeah, I, I think we watched it in the theater, but we definitely watched them all when they first came out, at least on
1: the Gina RV. gets a hall pass for Britt Marley. That's yeah. it. That's her. <laughs> She's going to join the cult. Yep. Who's Here your celebrity crush, Dave? Uh, I, I don't
2: really have crushes anymore. I'm too old for that. <laughs> oh, <No>. okay. <laughs> all right. But
0: Gina's a big fan of anything about cults, right? Isn't that kind of her thing? That too.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Was she in
1: a cult? Uh
2: gonna make a Catholicism joke, but maybe leave that. <laughs> that, out. Would <laughs> that
1: would have been good. That would have been good. Maybe she's in one now. She could be, you know, at you know Amway or any of those. You know, <laughs> what are those called? Market- no, multi-level marketing, multi-level
2: marketing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, for sure. She she loves those shows
0: about all those freaks. Yeah, it's. uh I feel like this is maybe like ahead of its time with how many shows and and docu series and whatever there are examining cults
1: and whatever. It's. uh a huge industry. it's not ahead of its time it's a movie about a cult josh
0: well i didn't mean it's like <laughs> revolutionary i just meant it's a slightly in advance of what became a larger trend
1: oh okay all right well um you know Sure. Okay. We'll go with that. All then. right. Didn't mean to
0: make you angry about it. It's just.
1: A... It's not. It's just a good little sci-fi movie. <laughs> it don't, is a good don't... little sci-fi movie. I yeah. agree. All right.
0: Fine, Jason. We'll we'll let you calm down here for a moment. and We'll come back and talk about our general thoughts on Sound of My Voice. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012. We are talking about my pick, sound of my voice, and and Jason, you did like this though, right? I feel like we have a lot yeah, of, yeah. We have a lot of episodes I like this movie where I pick a movie and I'm like, I love this movie. It's so great. It really spoke to me. And Jason's just eh,
1: okay. Well, you know, Josh. In my defense, you pick a lot of trash. So <laughs>
0: I mean, and, and we've had the opposite <laughs> dynamic as well with some of your picks. So I'm not saying it's only a one way. Yeah,
1: again, in my defense, your taste is questionable. Yeah, yeah. So well, that's uh... no. <laughs> I I like this movie. This is again, one of those like quick heater sci-fis. They good performances. They ratchet up the tension and keep it there throughout. There's one amazing scene towards the end where you're like, Whoa, like now I want to know more. And then they don't let you know anymore. (laughs) Right. Which is, which is frustrating. But, um, it's, um, like talk about a good use of, uh, money. I mean, this thing was like you said, a hundred thousand dollars. And, um, it felt. I don't know why they. The review said, "Oh, it didn't feel like it should belong on a big screen." I thought they like utilized the small sets that you would want in a in a good way here.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think one thing that happens a lot, and I see a lot of low budget sci fi movies, like straight to VOD movies and stuff like that, uh, for for work purposes. And one of the biggest flaws of those movies is when they try to do more than their budget. Allows them to do. And this is a movie where it doesn't attempt, like their budget would not have afforded them the chance to do certain things. And so instead of doing that in a crappy looking way that takes you out of the movie, they just talk about it. They just imply it or whatever, right? You get a lot of mileage out of Maggie, out of Britt Marling, just the way that she
1: describes the future
0: without having to show anything. And you can just imagine it. And that works a lot better.
1: Well, I also think that works because we don't know if this character is who she says who she says she is. Sally sells seashells by the <laughs> seashore. Okay, Josh, my point is we don't know if she really is what she claims to be, right? right? Um, Or if she's a scam artist. So, like, the more vague she can be, right, the less that she has to answer for, and when Someone calls her out on it when she brings up the Cranberries song, which is a hit in 2054, is it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? 2054. She's like, oh yeah, that it might be by some band named the Cranberries, but where I'm from, Benetton made it famous. Right, right? and I should have
0: <laughs> looked this up. I was wondering if like that song was in an ad for Benetton or whatever, because that would have been an even bigger- Oh, you t- should have looked that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, she says it's like a singer named Benetton, In uh, in the future has made this famous and he's looking. I'm looking. Sorry, (laughs) it doesn't look like it. The top result is a clip from the movie, so it doesn't look like that. It was actually. All my life. But uh, Jason's gonna sing it anyway because Jason's. (laughs) I love the cranberries. They're good and it's a good song. And uh, Jason, you know, it's. I'm sure it'll still be played in 2054 if the world still exists. So uh, I, well, probably, yeah, that's the real debate. That though, is, that's so. a big question here.
1: But also, it does feel like a good cult song. Like if you were in a cult, that would be a good one, right?
0: Yeah. And if you listen, you know, she sings it in this kind of eerie way, and you really end up paying attention to the lyrics because she's just singing it a cappella, and you think like this: Yeah, it sounds like some sort of weird culty thing potentially about uh, you know the the connections that th- these people are making and stuff like that. It could be something. But yeah, there the the tension here over is Maggie really from the future or is she a fraud? And I think also the question of if she's a fraud, like what is she trying to accomplish here, which is a thing that we don't really ever find out, uh is another question. And those are all enticing.
1: Well, the frustrating things are like you said, those loose threads, right? Where that federal agent says she's wanted for arson and for burglary right and like we know nothing of that side of her we know nothing of that side of her so you know is that what is going on is that true is it not true we see when this woman checks into her hotel room she like she checks everywhere in the room to see if there's like a bug you know to see if there's any recording devices around like we know nothing about that character and we see very little of that character so it to have such a big impact on the movie, I could see why people would want to know a little more at that point,
0: right. And I was wondering again this time because I didn't remember enough of the plot details, like, is that woman even really an FBI agent?
1: Right. I think yeah. that's a
2: fair question, Yeah, could be like Robert Patrick in Terminator Two. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, yeah, maybe she's <laughs> yeah. yeah she's also from the future. I mean, I came down on yeah. the side of her being real only because, at the very end of the movie, the actual police come in and arrest Maggie. And presumably that only happens because she's a real cop and has set that up.
1: But do they, Josh? <laughs> or is that just another one of your, you know, uh, situations that appears to be something that it's not conspiracy theorists?
0: That could be. It could be that they're not real cops and we only see them for a few seconds as they drag Maggie away there at the end. But I think you're meant to ask all these questions that they have that scene where we see the FBI agent or whoever she is checking her hotel room for bugs, because that's a weird thing. And you're meant to wonder who is this person and why is she doing this? And is she an antagonist to our main characters or what? And and I think the movie wants you to question all that stuff because it puts you in the position of the characters where they too don't ever really know what's real all the way through to the end of the movie.
1: Right. So we've already established there's this woman who claims she's a time traveler and she woke up in a bathtub and ended up on the street and was uh, just, I guess, homeless and and doing drugs and all this bad stuff, Josh, that you do in these situations. and When you're a time traveler from the future. Right. But then (laughs) this guy found her based on her tattoos, like, right? How do we know? Like, what? Who is this guy? How did he find her? How did he hear about her? We don't know, right? Then he like takes her into a basement, and now she's a cult leader. And uh, I get it, how you know cults—it's like a word of mouth type thing, Josh. You know, so I get that. But like, you know, the whole thing is like these two are like uh, Peter and Lorna are like, let's go make this documentary, and they start to believe her. Do they not? You know, and that, that, there's good tension there. And then at the end, when when they finally, when we finally think we might get to an answer she's taken away from us and we don't know anything and and the anymore.
0: Right. And I think there are a lot of those questions. One of the questions that I wondered about this time was that character Klaus, who is the the older man who she says he found her on the streets and like you said Jason, we don't know why he found her or how he knew to look for her um cuz he's not supposed to be from the future, but Right. Not- but
1: he know he he's looking for her specifically he says, Have you seen? You know, he's asking about the woman with the tattoos or whatever.
0: Right, so. exactly. And what she says, too, is that, you know, she woke up in this hotel room. She didn't have any memories. She wandered around homeless for some period of time, didn't know what was going on. And then Klaus finds her, picks her up, takes her with him, and he helps her remember. And so you have to wonder, what is his role in this? And they never really expand on that. But that made me think that somehow maybe he was the real cult leader, that he uses this like mentally ill, confused homeless woman as a conduit. And at the very end, again, when the cops come in and take her away and one of the other like true believer cult members is yelling at Peter, how could you have done this? And Klaus comes in and and pulls her away and says, let's call the attorney. Like, we've done this before. I know what to do here. So he was a a, a figure that I kind of wanted to know more about.
1: Yeah. And what a good plan. If you are going to start a cult and you don't want the heat on you, you find a mentally ill homeless person and, you know, put that person out front. Good lesson from this film. Well,
0: I mean, or you can say you find a young, attractive woman and put her out at the front of your
1: cult. That's a good one, too, or I mean, I think a uh, young attractive man would have worked there as well. yeah, absolutely, but not a uh, weird uh
0: kind of squirrely looking older guy, right
1: <laughs> Dave, what cult was Jeanette besides i mean she she she's going for it actually, you know D- you know josh dave and i we uh, we do the uh, the the yoga. We're not that far from cult. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know.
0: There's <laughs> certain, there's certain like subsets of yoga that really are cults, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The
1: the
2: whole Bikram thing has gotten really off the deep end in the last ten, fifteen years. Yeah, there are a lot uh, of podcasts
1: about that if you want to listen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's tons. Like
0: I said, it's a boom that is uh, subsequent to this film, but uh, Jason doesn't buy that idea.
1: I don't think it has anything to do with this. I didn't though, say gosh.
0: that it did. I'm just saying that this was dealing with <laughs> subject matter that has now become much more prevalent.
1: So Josh, yes. here's my bi- here's a question, right? Uh, There's this little girl, Abigail Pritchett, yeah. right? And she kind of like passes out on the ground sometimes, right? Right. And, and then we see her father inject medicine into her. Is she sick or is he making her sick?
0: Yeah, I wondered that too. And uh, he injects it like between her toes, which is something that drug addicts do when they can no longer find veins in their arms or whatever. And you wonder if that's maybe because he doesn't want it to be seen that she's been injected with medication into like her arms or something like that. But she also has her own whole weird thing. She's she's building these weird like Lego sculptures constantly in the house. Right. And he has to sort of pull her away from them in order to get her to go to bed. And she seems like a little weird cult leader in the making as well. And, And of course, the big moment, the one moment. That seems to potentially confirm that Maggie might really be from the future is when Abigail Pritchett, who Maggie has claimed is the young version of—spoiler of, alert! Well, we've spoiled this whole thing already. Yeah, watched the Just movie extensively, talked about the very end. Um, yeah. That uh, Maggie claims is 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 her mother, her young, you know, the young version of her mother, and they do this elaborate secret handshake together that has been the, the, the symbol of the cult members connecting with each other and somehow Abigail knows it. And that to me is, you know, it's the one moment where you think, we, how would we explain this
1: away, right? Well, and and she says to Maggie, how did you know my secret handshake? And Because Maggie claims that uh, Abigail's her mom in right. the future and everything. And she says, you taught it to me. Right, and that's a creepy moment, but I
0: can see how also that's a moment where you think, whoa, let's unpack that. And then it's, the movie's
1: over like two minutes later. Yeah. That's what I mean. I wanted, I wanted that. Cause like that scene is so that scene resonates. Right. And it's visceral and you feel it and you're like, what does this mean? And then like, what does this mean? And Peter's like, I don't know what it means. Right. You know, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, you dildos.
0: I mean, whereas I, again, I feel like I can sympathize with that, but the idea that Peter is left just as baffled as the audience, I think is what is resonant to me about the movie is that there are things in the world that we will never know the answers to. And you just have to grapple with that as you go yeah. through
1: life. I kind of like this, you know, if they were going to make the sequel, what we what we came up with, that Klaus is really this leader of this thing and he's using her as a, a paper tiger, Josh.
0: Right. And it could be. And it could be because she's a true believer and she really honestly believes that she's from the future, but he's manipulating her for his ends. You know, again, there's another moment where the FBI agent tells Lorna, "I'm going to tell you why they really want a kid," and then we don't see what she says. We don't hear what she says.
1: Well, how frustrating is that, though? Come on, man, tell us, dude.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Jason, you were saying there was like one scene that you thought was really powerful that you wanted to see more of. Is that the kid scene, or is that, that was that something the
1: scene? Oh, okay. Yeah. I, well, like I thought that scene was so good, and then I wanted the, uh, I wanted the, uh, the climax from that.
0: Right. Yeah. There isn't this isn't a movie that really quite builds to a climax. I mean, it does build to that moment between the two of them, but it, it's not it's not cathartic. It doesn't resolve anything particularly. But uh were there any other moments that you thought were were especially powerful?
1: Well, no, I like I like the film. I think the whole idea of like how they had to, you know, get from uh get to the basement where they go to a house and you know, they have to strip down and shower to make sure that they're not taking any recording devices with them. So when he does actually, he swallows a recording or a a transmitter, right? Right. Yeah. He has a a a camera in his glasses, but it can't,
0: they can't get the footage back because they're too far from the transmitter.
1: Right. So he swallows his transmitter. And then of course, Maggie makes them all barf in the thing. So he barfs it up and that was a good um suspenseful moment where it is to see if they were going to catch him or not.
0: Right, yeah, that's a great scene and another thing where you yeah. wonder like okay, he's decided he's going to swallow this transmitter so that they can finally get their recordings and that happens to be on the day that she's leading them through this strange exercise that involves them all barfing stuff up like does she somehow know? And then of course, even after he does barf it up and and it's right there on the floor, he's able to grab it quickly and it it, it doesn't seem like anyone realizes that that was what he was doing, but maybe she knows somehow.
1: Right, I did not. I did not interpret it that way. I just brought it on the surface level with the suspenseful. Right, well, that's fair too. I mean, it is. It is a very
0: suspenseful moment. So, um, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, <laughs> I just feel like that's it's any moment in this movie where it's if it's it got basic, you know, it's got suspense or whatever, but it's also trying to structure it around the idea of questioning the reality and the motivations of everything that's going on.
1: Yeah. And it's got a young Constance Wu.
0: It does. Yes. Constance I mean, most of the actors in this film are not uh, well-known now, uh, nor were they then. But yes, yeah, she plays one of the cult members. And of course, James Urbaniak in a weird blonde wig or dyed blonde hair as the father of Abigail Pritchett. He has like two yeah. lines.
1: Who he's sp- who we spoke about on our uh, American Splendor episode. Yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting uh,
0: guy in a bunch of I like random him. roles. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I do too. He's uh, always kind of a
1: quirky little presence there. So, so Josh, you said this was number one. You think that. It- is as good now as it was then, Josh? Um,
0: I, More or less, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I would put this at number one if I went and revisited everything that's on my list there. And we will get to revisit Argo later, so we'll see how I feel about that. Um, Or maybe it would actually be on my 2011 list if we strictly go by premiere dates. But I still think it's very good. You know, I was wondering that, because, especially because, as we'll talk about, I'm sure that Britt Marling and Zalbach Manley have done a bunch of similar things since this, and that maybe it would feel less fresh or less effective than the later versions of this. And I mean, it's clearly, I think that they've refined some of these ideas as they've gone along, but that's not always necessarily great. And I feel like the rawness of this is is very effective. Britt Marling is so good. She is scary as hell in this movie. Like, I don't know if we're supposed to like Maggie, but to me, Maggie is frightening.
1: Hmm, I wasn't scared at all, but Josh... You're scared of a lot of women for a lot of different yeah. reasons. I mean, I
0: didn't mean I was scared in the same sense as like watching a horror movie, but she seemed like a scary like if I encountered her, I would find her scared. Like Oh
1: you know, yeah, like, like like she could just stab you and not think twice about it. Right. She either.
0: seems like she's got that or or you know how manipulative she is. That whole again, going back to that that scene where they everyone barfs, like you know, she's doing a very cult leadery thing of trying to break these people down emotionally and get into their trauma and all this kind of stuff that, that, you know, we talk, you, you end up seeing in all these documentaries about cult leader techniques and she's very good at it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't think I could be a cult leader. Could you? A leader? No, definitely not. No. I hope
0: I wouldn't be a cult follower either, but I'd be more worried. I don't
1: think you would be a cult follower. I don't think so. I don't see that for you. I
0: appreciate that. I mean, I feel like I would just be, you know, I didn't even like doing summer camp activities. You know, I would, if we're yeah. sitting in a circle and everyone's supposed to do something, I would just be like, no, nah, I'm leaving.
1: The thing about being the cult leader, it feels like it takes so much energy. You know, yeah, you have people helping you and surrounding you, but like, it's just a lot of work. It is, and you always have to be like emotionally
0: uh available for all of your followers because they put so much of themselves onto you.
1: Well, right. Or, you know, kind of, um, as you said, manipulate them into thinking.
0: Right. But either way, you have to have all you have to be emotionally on all the time.
2: Yeah. This reminds me uh, when Peter, it's starting to like become clear that he's like kind of falling for the cult and uh his partner is trying to get him to like get out of Luna. it. Yeah, yeah, Lorna, uh, he, he says something along the lines of like, you know, what do you want your life to be like sneaking 40s into foreign films and getting drunk and going to art installations? And I'm like, that sounds way better than going to a <laughs> <Right>. cult. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> I think he's saying that- So that's a cult you could go for. Right. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty fun cult.
0: But yeah, yeah, I mean, he's saying that I think in reference to the idea that they need to make their documentary so that they can follow through, but they don't seem to really right. be working very hard on making the documentary. Right, no.
1: which of course now would be a podcast.
0: Yes, it would be a sure. podcast. They're like the <laughs> no. the the characters from the beginning of David Gordon Green's Halloween who are trying to make a podcast about <laughs> Michael Myers, something like that.
1: Oh, <laughs> there you go. I was going to go with only murders in the building.
0: There you go. That's a, that's a less uh, disturbing,
1: creepy option to talk about. There. Which of course you'll say was directly influenced by this film. It clearly wasn't. But Steve Martin and Martin Short were just watching it together one night, and only murders three seasons later, right, Josh? I
0: don't think so. No, but oh, I enjoy that. Right. I enjoy that show very much. It's a. It's a. Me fun too. Show.
1: Yeah. Should we rate
0: this yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. Jason's done with this movie. What do you got? You keep what? saying
1: that, but it's like the movie's only eighty six minutes, and we dissected it in a lot of different ways. Do you want to go minute by minute on this thing, or what? No, so- no. Let's
0: let's let's uh, <laughs> let's wrap it up here.
1: You want five out of five secret handshakes? Yeah, those are long handshakes too. No. Nice. Yeah. So uh three and a half. Uh almost got it to four at one point, but too many unanswered questions uh that uh I would have liked to answer. No. Three and a half. Well,
0: that's a good I'm 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 happy with that rating. I'm 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 glad you appreciated this film.
1: I like the film. Yeah, I like it. Good. Yeah. So, I give yeah. it a
0: four. Uh, out of five, and uh, I like it too. I like it a lot. Maybe I'm not as wowed by it now, but I still think it's a really good movie and it's kind of underrated at this point because it's maybe been overshadowed by their later stuff. So uh,
2: Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three and a half. I feel like I was four back when I first saw it, but like you said, I I think like they seem to just refining the same thing sort of in their, you know, future projects. So kind of loses a little bit there, but it's still really good. And I don't
1: think they're overshadowed. I just think they're not in the thought process at all of most people at this time. Well, I mean, (laughs) I mean, if you
0: were interested in their work and you watch the OA, this is kind of like a proto version of that. And so people might uh, not appreciate
1: it as much. Let's save that for segment three, an awesome movie year, Legacy. Yes. (laughs) We'll <laughs> put up a big title
0: card that says three before we get to this. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about my pick, which is Sound of My Voice from Britt Marling and Zal Batman Lee. And we've mentioned their subsequent work here. Immediately afterwards, they made a film called The East, which had some similarities, but was without the science fiction-y elements. It was about an eco-terrorist group. And I remember liking that, but not as much as this. Did you see that one, Jason?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was all on this train to see all their work together. And I agree with you. This is the This is the best of the bunch.
0: Right. And so from there... Then, and as we said, The East was not a success at the box office, and so they ended up, their next project together was a TV series called The OA, which deals with a lot of the same themes here, and is something that has a big cult following, and stars Britt Marling as a woman who claims to be not from the future, but to have had some sort of interdimensional experience and is gathering followers, and there's a lot of similarities there, and um I, I, you know, I watched the first season of it and I really enjoyed it, but as much as it feels like on the one hand, they're refining and expanding on these ideas. On the other hand, I felt like this 85 minute version of it was maybe a bit more satisfying than a whole season.
1: Well, my frustration with the OA is it was two seasons. And by the time I wanted to get into it, people who were like, uh, finished with season two are like, oh man, there's not going to be any more. And like, it got... Netflix did what it does to shows like this, where like you want a satisfying resolution or ending, and they cancel it before that you get the chance to get that.
0: Right. I mean, they had had a plan, apparently, for a five-season story, and they only got to make two seasons. And I think now when people come into Netflix, they have the, the sense that unless you're Stranger Things, you're not going to get more than two or three seasons, and maybe they plan for that more. And uh,
1: that was not what happened a few years ago. So, Josh, the new thing they're doing together does not sound nearly as interesting. It's going to be on uh, FX. It's called Retreat. The series follows Darby Hart, an amateur detective who tries to solve a murder that takes place at a retreat in a remote location where she and 11 other guests are invited by a billionaire to participate. So it's a uh, glass onion. But not funny. And- but not funny. And well, oh, and Josh, I could argue that Glass Onion is Glass Onion, but not funny. Oh man, Jason coming <laughs> but, for Glass wow. Onion in this
0: episode. I mean,
1: dude, I think I think we could all agree that a lot of people overrated
0: Glass Onion. Well, that's a whole unrelated separate <laughs> subject. But I mean, I will disagree with you that, that that doesn't sound interesting. I mean, it doesn't sound like just another version of Sound of My Voice or the OA, but I'm okay with that. I think they, they can do one different thing.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm open. I hope it is great. Yeah. I'm just saying, conceptually, it sounds like they've narrow casted.
0: Yeah, but with. maybe they got burned when they made this extremely ambitious thing that they were not allowed to finish. So maybe they're trying to do something a little more self contained, and I don't blame them
1: for that. Of course, all you fans out there should watch Arbitrage, a great film that also stars Britt Marling.
0: Yeah, and she had this kind of period because she was a big breakout where she did a bunch of acting roles in movies like Arbitrage and The Company You Keep, and she was on a TV series called Babylon. But it really seems like she was not all that interested in an acting career, which I assume she could have much more extensive a career, uh, you know, in films or in in TV series or whatever. And once Babylon ended in 2014, she hasn't acted in anything other than stuff that she has herself written and produced since 2014.
1: And I saw this quote that says she much prefers to act in other people's work than her own. And that's, so. well,
0: I mean, maybe she just prefers not to be acting, but she is acting in The Retreat.
1: She, or in Retreat, she's definitely right. one of the
0: stars. So. Yeah,
1: I think she is the star, one of the main two.
0: Yeah, I mean, that main character that's mentioned in the synopsis is played by Emma Corrin. So who knows um, how mm-hmm. big her role is, but I'm sure it's not small. So, but it's just interesting. It seemed to me, I mean, maybe that quote counteracts it. To me, it seemed like, she's more interested in being able to take control of projects as a writer and a producer rather than working as an actor.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Well, Josh, Christopher Denham we'll be talking about later in this season, or at least the film he was in, Argo. Oh yeah.
0: There you go. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he plays Peter. We haven't actually mentioned the names of these lead actors, Christopher Denham and Nicole Vicious, who plays Lorna, but yeah, he's, he's definitely very much a guy that you kind of recognize and, think uh, I think I've seen that guy before he's in a lot of TV episodes uh he was on uh, the gilded age and shining girls recently was on billions so yeah he's all over but uh you know no no breakouts from this unless you count Britt Marley
1: yeah but he's working a lot he's going to be an Oppenheimer and uh, a John Slattery directed effort mm-hmm. called Maggie Moors which is about a small town that where crime never happens. And then two women named Maggie Moore are both murdered. That sounds interesting. It does. And also he's in the new Luke Besson movie, uh, Dog Man, which we talked about in uh, our antiviral episode because Caleb Landry Jones is- Wow, out. so many connections being made here. Good job, Jason. Mm, that's and what I'm here to thread this whole thing you together. Are, you are so. indeed.
0: <laughs> Nicole Vicious uh, basically stopped acting after this film um, she has one further credit in 2013, and I was trying to look up and see if she's doing something else these days or whatever, but I found nothing on her. So who knows? But she's good here.
1: Yeah, it's a bummer. I, I agree with you because I would I think she's a good actress here, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, all the acting is solid here. And again, you know, on this low budget indie level, sometimes you get questionable performances or whatever, but I thought they were both good, even though Britt Marling clearly overshadows them because of her Really, like ethereal screen presence.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
0: Yeah, so we mentioned that this is one of the first roles for Constance Wu, who, of course, is the biggest star of anybody involved in this film. Um, You know, (laughs) fresh off the boat, Hustlers, Crazy Rich Asians, Uh, James Urbaniak, who is also a very recognizable character actor and uh, you know comedy actor a lot. And to me, I was fascinated by this. Is the cinematographer of this film is Rachel Morrison, and this is only this was her second feature. And she's gone on to become a major cinematographer. She's the first woman ever nominated for a Best Cinematography Oscar for her work on Mudbound. And she's also become a director and done a lot of TV. So she's gone on to a much bigger career.
1: Oh, I'll have to look out for her. You
0: do that. So uh, that's all I got on the legacy here. That's good. You did a good job. Thank you. You got anything else?
1: Uh, Nicole Vicious, Josh. Maybe we could watch her film when we do a holiday episode called A Jersey Christmas. Well,
0: that sounds like a film that you'll enjoy, (laughs) certainly. Or that you would have written, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah. either way, really.
0: All right. Well, that is Sound of My Voice. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can join our cult online and on social media.
1: Yes. And please give us tithings, Josh.
0: (laughs) Yes, thank you.
1: uh, (laughs) No, we're at Awesome Movie Year on uh the dot com we're at awesome movie you're on the fb and the and the uh ig and we're at awesome movie pod on the twits so uh still waiting on that mastodon account dave uh i'm jason harris comedy on all those socials or j harris comedy i used to have a website go for jason that got kicked out of a cult but now i started another one called eat this comedy that might start its own new cult you could also look up eat this comedy or the trivia party on instagram
0: Uh, You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, and listen to our producer David Rosen's
2: awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, follow us on social media at piecingpod, and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. It's kind of like a cult, right?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Dave's the cult leader. Yeah. See, Jason, you and I couldn't be cult leaders, but Dave already is a cult leader.
1: <laughs> you know, he's doing a terrible job. He really needs to <laughs> yeah. rein in the cult. if you're going to go. I'm not that. as pretty as Britt Marlon. Yeah. either. That's your problem. Well,
2: That's right? a good again. That's
1: that's <laughs> All right. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, it's time for my guy Mads. It's a foreign film. It's our foreign film of 2012. It's an important one, and it's got Mads Mikkelsen, who I love, and it's called The Hunt, which um, is clearly not going to be as happy as this promo for The Hunt. Yeah. We really, we really got a <laughs> string of very
0: downbeat films for some reason happening this season. So
1: <laughs> don't worry, I Good, we pick up the uh, the levity when it gets to my pick again. I look but, forward to that. Hey, but The Hunt is is a movie that we're excited to cover.
0: We are. So tune in next time for The
2: Hunt, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.